As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be back in the studio this afternoon with a, a very special guest who I will be bringing on in just a moment. Um, I want to give out our website address so that you can uh, find out all information around the show regarding our new On the Road series and some of our wonderful content uh, articles written by our contributors. You can find everything about Women to Watch at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And be sure to follow us on social media as well, where we share some wonderful behind-the-scenes uh, photos and um, some, some additional information. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Women to Watch. Um, oh, I'd love to introduce my guest this afternoon, who unfortunately was not able to join me in the studio. She was going to make a trip down from Connecticut, and the storm kept her away, uh, but we're happy to have her calling in by phone. And her name is Catherine Bergeron. Catherine is president of Connecticut College. Uh, she's actually the 11th president uh, to be elected there. And I welcome you to the show, Catherine. Oh, thank you, Susan. It's great to be here, even remotely. Yes, even remotely. And we have a great connection, and we're, we're going to have a wonderful conversation. So I, I thank you so much for your time, taking an hour out of your day, which I know is extremely busy. Well, it's a great pleasure. Always a pleasure to take an hour out. Yeah. <laughs> this will be like a little mini vacation. Right. <laughs> um, so, listen, I'd love to start off the interview with a little bit of uh, information about your background growing up in New London, Connecticut, which I understand you are the middle of five children. And um, as you shared with me, we had a wonderful conversation prior to the show um, about your growing up. And although you were a middle child, you described yourself as a little bit bossy. <laughs> so perhaps that <laughs> well, leadership I, I, started I, early. Well, of course, I didn't see myself that way. I think I shared with you that perhaps my siblings saw me that way. But uh, okay. I, I actually uh, was born in New London, Connecticut, because that's where the Lawrence Memorial Hospital um, was located. I grew up in a little town about 15 minutes south of there called um, um, Old Lyme, Connecticut. And yes, I grew up in a in a big family, big Catholic family with five siblings. And uh, it's a very wonderful sort of gift to have that many siblings. It means you really grow up in a very social environment. Um, 
And you have to learn to be social in that environment, especially when you're in the middle, right? You yes. have to get along with everyone, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the five of us were, as I told you, born relatively close together, and there was a gap between the older two and the younger three. Um, we were known as the three little ones, and I was the oldest of that younger cohort. So that's what I meant, so that I was both a mediator because I was in the middle, but I was also a boss because I was the oldest of the three uh, younger ones. Oh, and, I do, and I do think of myself as, um, uh, well, that is a very useful background to what I do now because, yeah. you know, you have to be a mediator and a boss. That's right. That's right. Those are two very <laughs> exceptional qualities. So tell me about when you first became inspired uh, by music because you went on to pursue a master's and doctoral uh, degree in music history, and that has been a very uh, large part of your your life's journey. When did you first uh, discover it? Well, you know, I, I did come from a pretty musical family, and I was fortunate to study piano from an early age, and later in high school, I started playing the flute very seriously, and I loved both of those, uh, those experiences, and in a way, the two of them fed off each other, but, um, uh, you know, I... I think one of the things that was a real gift of uh, my uh, family was the way they encouraged us to pursue the things that uh, the things that we really wanted to do. They didn't have a, a directed path. My parents, you know, both of my parents had gone to college, and we understood that that we would too. And I think that um, it meant that we knew we were supposed to work hard in school, but but they really encouraged us to be who we wanted to be, to be anything we wanted to be. And I think that lesson is critical. When I, when I think about students today especially, you know, I meet parents all the time who want to channel uh, their child's interests. Mm. And I really get that. But finding what you really love is probably the most important thing for any young person's intellectual growth. And, um, and so I feel very, very privileged to have had that kind of experience of being able to find out from a young age that, that I really did love music. Um, and, um, you know, I was actually serious about every other subject in school, too, to be, to be frank. Um, I think the only class that I really didn't love in high school was gym. <laughs> <laughs> so you I did... don't know. That's, that's probably another story in that, but, but I won't want to go into. <laughs> well, so you, well, then you were not an athlete. I'm no, guessing. I was not an athlete. And yeah. When you do grow up in a big family, you often, the, people tend to assume different roles. And I had a younger sister who was extremely athletic. And so that meant that that's, she was the athlete and I was going to be something else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but how but, wonderful that, you know, as you mentioned, mom and dad told the five of you to pursue what you're passionate about. And I think that's, that's such a key message that you seem to have grown up with um, when, I, when children are, you know, kind of guided into a field that mom and dad think they should go into and they don't love it. That can lead, you know, to difficulties. Yes, I think that's right. I feel very privileged for that. I mean, it has to do with growing up at a particular moment as well. I mean, so that uh, maybe we were free, freer to pursue the things without fear that they would end up in uh, in a way that wasn't going to be gratifying or that wasn't going to actually support us um, in our later lives. But the story that I like to tell is that, frankly, almost anything you do, if you do it, and you love it means that um, you it will lead you in very profitable ways in in later life, even if it's you're not doing that thing anymore, uh, which is kind of the story here. I mean, I'm I'm not playing instruments now, but that background I think has been quite formative in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, and in some ways because the study of music involves so much more than just uh, you know, a path toward performance or composition, and, and it is quite relevant to what I'm doing now. Um, you know, mus music study encompasses philosophy, which have to do with the questions of being and time that music brings forward, and it encompasses history because you're studying the artifacts from different historical epics, and it encompasses sociology and anthropology, 
which is, you know, how and why music is made and who makes it. It, it has mathematics in it because everyone studies music theory, which is really a kind of mathematical analysis of music making. And there's a science of music and acoustics, and there's even a technology of music, um, which has to do with not just computers and music, but also musical instrument design. Wow. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. musicology, you could say, is really the embodiment of the liberal arts. And so when you think about it, it was a very good foundation for leading a liberal arts college, mm. although I could never have thought about that at the time. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, tell me, you know, so that's very interesting to me, all those different fields um, that mm -hmm. the, the study of music encompasses. And I'm wondering if during the your years of, of study, um, did you have any revelations um, from that study that kind of have stayed with you, whether it was philosophical or historical or... Uh, from a soci sociological standpoint, yeah, I think that there are there are things that that move deeply, um, that push you along. And I ultimately did become a music historian, uh, and so I I did pursue interesting questions about about the musical past and about singing and why people sing the way they do. Um, but I also think, and this is something I have thought about a lot, that you know, music making, which one is always involved in, 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 even when studying this broad range of musical activity, music making is a social activity. And, and in that, in, as a social activity, it involves complex systems, right? interactions between many different components. So there's a whole branch of leadership development that uh, is known as systems thinking, right? <laughs> And I would argue that anyone who's ever tried bringing together groups of people to make music is involved in some pretty heavy systems thinking. So I think there are some important leadership lessons that come from playing music, learning to listen, learning to motivate people, learning to connect people across their differences. Mm -hmm. and, and learning, I think the most important part, to work for a higher purpose. Because when you're bringing people together to make music, you're you're doing it to do something beyond yourself. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, let's talk about why the focus on French music. So French was your <laughs> yes, your your subject. French was my subject, um, and uh, how did I get into that? Well, I I think that there are probably always deep lessons. Um, and everything tick and scholarship has something to do with your deep past. And so at the time, you're not necessarily realizing that you're picking it. I always loved um, the French language. I loved learning French. And um, uh, my name, Bergeron, <laughs> is a French name. My, my grandparents spoke French as their first language, uh, even though they were born in this country. Um, and I, I do have formative memories of them speaking uh, with their friends from from Montreal, from Quebec, when I was a little girl, and my parents did not speak French at home, and so I was quite affected by that idea that there was this other language that was part of our family. So when I mm. um, I, I became quite passionate about studying French when I was in high school, and and then I continued in college, and when I uh, ended up in graduate school, there were many things about French music that uh, that really attracted me. And so I, I ended up writing writing some uh, books that really had to do with the study of the French language and its connection to music through poetry. And I, I think that it probably goes back to some of those very early formative experiences. And, and tell me why you decided to write the, the two books that you did, Decadent Enchantments and Voice Lessons. What was it that you hoped the readers would gain from them? Well, uh, my, my work as a music historian has centered on French music and culture in the late 19th and early 20th century. And uh, my first book was on the oldest form of notated music in the West, Gregorian chant. And, and it was about its revival as an art form in the late 19th century. And that actually happened in France uh, uh, in a sort of interesting little 
episode of French cultural history uh, when the Benedictine monks revived their own practices after the French Revolution. So this book is really about the reinvention of a lost musical tradition in the context of the reinvention of a lost religious tradition and about the role that modern technology played in that reinvention through architecture and typography and sound recording and all of that. So it was a kind of cultural study of, uh, of a very particular musical moment in history. And my second book was also about song, but it was really about this unique uh, hybrid form of song poetry that flourished at the end of the 19th century in France. Um, and this book explored really how that music ultimately reflected modern ideas about the French language that were being developed uh, in French education and and, and French science at this moment. People were discovering the sounds of the French language. So I'm writing a book about how music, which sounds in a very um, unique way, a particular kind of sound that French song acquired at this moment, is really reflecting a cultural moment in which uh, the French are themselves discovering something quite profound about their language and their identity. Uh, so to speak. So, so both books are about delving into a particular moment in French history and asking the question of why music looked and sounded the way it did. And so that's one of the reasons why I wrote those books. But as I said before, I think deep down there's always another reason that you write the books that you write and you know why you become passionate about a particular window onto the past probably has something to do with your own past. Mm-hmm. And for me, these books were probably a way of exploring a deep fascination with the French language and and also with the religion that were both part of my upbringing. Yes. Yeah. Do you have? I understand you you also have some Irish in in your background and you know there's. <laughs> yes, I know that's true. I, you know, probably would have pleased my mother no end uh, if I had studied Irish music instead, but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's never too late, right? We we said that earlier. It's never too late. Do you have, you know, have you thought about, you know, delving deep into the study of other? Oh, oh well, actually, the thing, the thing is, as I talked about, all the kinds of ways that um, music study and how eclectic music study is from all of these disciplinary perspectives, it's also eclectic mm, um, from yes. musical perspective. And, yes. and I would say that, you know, my own study of music has, has run the gamut from popular music to contemporary music from, as I say, the sort of rather um, maybe arcane or esoteric aspects of 19th century French history to, you know, rock and roll, to film music, <laughs> to, to the, you know, to music of, uh, of uh, central Java, <laughs> other kinds of uh, world music experiences. So, um, yes, and Irish music was in there a little bit. <laughs> well, listen, we it's it is endless, and we could do a whole show right on yes, on, on music, but we can't do that. So I want to I want to talk more about you and and your role as president. Um, so you took the role as president of Connecticut College in January 2014. So you're coming up on your fourth year. Is that correct? Yeah, this is my fourth full yeah. year. Yeah. So mm-hmm. tell me first. First, tell me what what has been the greatest challenge. The greatest challenge of this role? Yes. I think that, you know, I think that one of the things that uh, I've heard other presidents say and that turns out to be true is that there's nothing that truly prepares you for this role. You know, being the president of a small college is like being the mayor of a small city. There are many, many different aspects that you are thinking about and then you're caring about uh, at any given moment, you know, from the public works, you know, whether you're getting proper steam to the buildings, you know, (laughs) sewage, you know. (laughs) (laughs) All that fun stuff. There's there's that dimension of actually the the physical well-being of the whole, uh, you know, built the grounds and property to you know, sent to this really essential work that we're doing in the well-being of students and educating students. And, um, you know, it's exhilarating. Yeah. So, but anything that's that exhilarating is also 
of course, a daily challenge. Yeah. And so, yes, it's not mundane. It covers, you know, as you said, operations and, and education mm-hmm. and, and all of these things, which to me sounds wonderful simply because, you know, repetitive tasks and, and mundane is is not something that ever felt good to me. So I would imagine that while you're um, on a daily basis faced with challenges across the board, you know, you use the word exhilarating. It's so inspiring to work with groups of people, the faculty and the staff, who are all, uh, they're all working toward a similar mission, mm-hmm. which is educating students for future leadership. And it's so, it's so inspiring to work with students, especially students of this generation, I would say, who more than students of earlier generations come to college now with a great desire to change the world and actually a great deal of impatience Mm. (laughs) with making it happen. Um, And so you're harnessing a huge amount of energy and passion. And and I think that gives us um, enormous responsibility to, to take that uh, that gift that we're being given in doing this work and making something of it. That's so interesting to me that because one of my questions was for you to talk to me about your students and, and how you see them um, working different today from, from our generation. And, and you mentioned two things. They're interested in changing the world and they're also impatient. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me, does the impatience that come... That changing it now. <laughs> yes, yes, but I wonder, because things today are so accessible, you know, technology has changed our lives, and mm-hmm. information we can find instantaneously. And do you believe that that has created more impatience in people? Uh, I think that, yeah, social media has changed the, the, the game in many ways the way people communicate, how instantaneously, we, we, and we're all, come on, we're all like this. It's not just young people. Mm-hmm. We have all become less um, tolerant of waiting for the things that we think that we ought to have. So, uh, so that's going to change um, the, the nature of education. However, on the other hand, it can't be denied that there's also um, that slow learning <laughs> You know, like the slow food movement is also a very important uh, dimension of what we uh, what we do. That 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 education is developmental, and partly what we need to do is 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 to demonstrate through the ways that we educate that something is going to evolve over time. Give people the hope to see toward that end and recognize that something more is going to happen if you continue to stay with it. So partly being the, the, the notion of impatience is, pos- is positive because it's an impetus for moving forward, but it also has to be uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, couched or, or uh, changed in a way so that you recognize that, you know, there's a sprint and then there's the long distance and real change happens over through persistence and through patience and through staying the course Mm, right so that you make the right choices so that the change is sustainable yeah and that you continue to learn more about what it is that you want to do because you may find out that the thing that that you think is the right solution uh, is could be improved. Mm. So tell me, why do you think that young people today have such an interest in, you know, when we use the phrase change the world, it's a big, it's a big, big phrase, and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different mm-hmm. people. But I do think that young people today, when they're thinking about post-graduation, they are looking for companies that have uh, greater causes than uh, just producing their product, you know, and, and doing the services that the company does. Why now in history do you think this is so important to young people? 
Well, I think it's important because people are aware that we have a long way to go to achieve our ideals for um, the kind of uh, democratic society that we believe uh, we should be fostering. We are, we have a long way to go. And uh, I think it's really, as I said, inspiring to be working with students who are not willing to be thinking uh, exclusively about their own personal gain. They're also thinking to work, uh, thinking about how they can work with um, others in order to achieve larger ideals. Mm. I read a quote, uh, Catherine, that I believe one of your, um, it might have been the chair of, the, of your board, uh, said, Catherine has a tremendous ability to connect ideas and convert them into action. Is that something that you have learned uh, to do over time, or do you feel you always had that ability? Well, it's interesting. I think I was talking about systems thinking before, connecting ideas. I don't know. I, I, how, do you, how do you talk about this? I, one of the things that uh, I love about Connecticut College is uh, that the mission of Connecticut College, as the stated mission of Connecticut College, is educating students to put the liberal arts into action. So I think one of the why I love being here is that that idea of connecting ideas and putting them into action is really mission critical for this college. And um, yeah, I think that you know this may come from some of those experiences that I was talking about earlier that. Uh, the, the study of music is about uh, the liberal arts in action, <laughs> that uh, you actually realize some kinds of ideas and ideals when you um, engage in performance with other people. So that may be a metaphor for this other kind of work um, that uh, ultimately I'm doing at a different scale now. But I think that it's uh, enormously gratifying to connect uh, to, to connect the dots, and the liberal arts are the places is is the educational place where you connect the dots, right? Where you you don't study a range of things each for its own sake. You study it in order to find the connections between them, and when you do that, when you find those spaces in between. You actually learn much more about everything um, along the way, and you oh, you begin to see new possibilities uh, in that connection. So, how do you um, get the people that work with you and for you to have that same type of um, philosophy? I'll say. In other words, I think it's. It's so true what you said about you know connecting everything and, and understanding that when when you know it that it is all connected that then you can do something with that and but not everybody has that same point of view so um, you know what is your philosophy for leading your team and getting them to be on board to have that same outlook? Well, I I think leadership is bringing people together for a greater good. Right, so it is about connecting people for a greater good. Leadership, ultimately, in the end, is not about you. It's really about everyone else. And you know, I spoke to a group of student leaders at the start of this school year, um, and 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 I said something along those lines. I I said, you know, we often start out with the wrong idea of what leadership is. We tend to think of a leader as a person who takes bold action, or a person who acts decisively, or a person who has a vision and knows how to implement it. These are words that we use all the time mm -hmm. when we talk about leadership. And these things, you know, are true to a certain extent. But to me, the premise is, the premise is not exactly right. Because in the end, leadership isn't about the individual it's really about the collective, mm -hmm. not about how much power that you have, but how much you enable and empower your community to achieve the things that they want to achieve. Um, and so that's, I would say, my philosophy. How do you empower a group of people to achieve the things you want to achieve? You do it by listening. You do it by communicating. 
um, and you do it by actually stepping back enough to try to see what a group of people can achieve together. Um, you know, we're going to um, take a quick break, Catherine. When we come back, I'd love to get right into talking about the integrative education called Connections that you have developed at Connecticut College and, and learn more about what exactly that is. We'll, All right. We'll be right back. Thank you. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Catherine Bergeron, who is the president of Connecticut College. And Catherine, as I was doing my research and, and reading about some of the things that you've implemented uh, since you've taken on this role, um, kind of at the core of everything is this integrative education called Connections, and I'd love to hear more about what exactly that is. Oh, I'd be happy to tell you, um, um, because Connections is a very exciting thing that is happening at Connecticut College. It really is uh, our reinvention of a liberal arts education. And uh, the idea is to really allow students to orchestrate their education with a whole team of advisors to to allow students to learn for life beyond college, and, and also to encourage students to put the world together in new ways by making those connections, right? Buttressing their academic major with interdisciplinary coursework, with a world language, with a relevant internship, and really with a whole interconnected outlook. So we are thinking of, about it as the new liberal arts for this 21st century globally networked generation. Um, and the idea really is to try to unleash, unleash you know, our students' curiosity and passion, and then to have them bring that passion to every aspect of their college experience, in courses and research and in their jobs, in their act, uh, activities and clubs, in their work in the community, in their work across the globe and ultimately right into their lives beyond college. So it's a, a whole four-year integrated journey. And we really do think it will make our students better prepared for the kind of problem solving that the new world of work requires. So then do all of the students participate in some type of a co-op or internship? Yeah, Connecticut College has actually had a, um, uh, an internship program uh, for all students for a number of years. It's one of the strengths of our program. This new program really makes sure that that is a, an element that's fully integrated into a four-year um, uh, perspective. And we do that through 
an element that we're calling integrative pathway. So students will choose a major in their sophomore year, but they'll also choose what we're calling a pathway. And a pathway is a whole connected set of experiences and courses, interdisciplinary courses, uh, organized around a theme, you know, public health or entrepreneurship or creativity or, uh, you know, there, there's a pathway in development and data analytics. There are quite a number of them. We're going to have about a dozen as, as we go on. And, and so in the sophomore year, the students will take an introductory course that really explores those, um, the broader questions of that theme. They will develop their own question, uh, which is, you know, what they really want to delve into for themselves over the next three years. They will plan work they will plan work that they will do in a local community, and ultimately in their senior year, and they will, they will have research and internship experiences that are wrapped into that, and then in their senior year, they'll look back and, and reflect on it in, uh, and in a, some kind of integrative project that will be presented to the whole campus in an all-campus symposium. So that's the idea uh, of really having students think about the long arc of their intellectual and social and civic um, uh, development. And I think I was referring to that a little bit earlier when I said, you know, part of the thing about harnessing students' passion, but also demonstrating that, you know, it can actually add up to something more if you keep at it in a new way. We actually think the pathway is going to be a way of unleashing some of that great energy in, in uh, marvelous, marvelous outcomes. Let, let's talk about the young women um, for a moment. And, you know, there's, there's so much talk around um, encouraging women to go into STEM fields these days. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd love your insights on that and, and what you're seeing from your own students, whether, uh, you know, what the percentages are of the young women going into the math and sciences versus the arts. Uh, yeah, we actually have, I think, some very good percentages. I wish I had the statistics that I could rattle off right now. I think a lot of it has to do um, uh, with uh, we have strong uh, computer science at Connecticut College with uh, a, a kind of rock star female faculty member who's um, such an important uh, player in this kind of uh, enterprise. I've met so many women who had no intention of studying computer science, and then they ended up majoring in it. Mm. Why? Because they take that initial course, they're caught by it, they realize they're good at it, mm-hmm. they're encouraged to go on, and, uh, and uh, you know, there's a wonderful young woman who's a senior here, the captain of the soccer team, and she, uh, she is also majoring in computer science uh, and something else, but one of the things that she's gotten involved in is uh, a program that was started a couple of years ago by another student, um, which is to encourage young women in middle school to pursue the sciences mm-hmm. and, and mathematics. And they bring groups of students to campus on a Saturday and show them all around and do fun experiments and really um, show them what life can be like as you work in these fields. I think it's incredibly important because well, first of all, uh, it's going to be important for the future of technology to have more women as the inventors. <laughs> Wonderful things will happen. But on top of that, it really is a moment when I think more and more tech industries are seeking um, women for their own workplaces. And so I think it's an exciting moment for, for us. Uh, I think that Connecticut College has done very, very well in, in uh, supporting women in those endeavors. And what, what do you think the qualities are that women have that allow them to be, uh, or allow them to excel in uh, the computer science world and technology? Well, you know, what's really interesting about STEM fields is, uh, is, is the way that Collaboration is the name of the game. And I think that there is, um, you know, an aptitude for, for collaborative 
thinking is a very uh, is, is something that's very very important for uh, future problem solving. Right, the most important problems require collaborative solutions, and you know real progress is made when people find ways to listen to each other and to find common ground. And uh, and I think women are hardwired to do that kind of work. Hmm. Kind of, the, you know, looking out for uh, the community and making sure that everyone is participating. Yeah, actually thinking about the the um, whole and the, uh, the outcome as a whole um, as opposed to uh, an individual product. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's, I, I don't want to enter into heavy gender um, generalizations. Uh, I think it's great to be ambitious, and I think it's great to pursue individual goals. But there's a, a different kind of progress that happens when you also are willing to recognize the power of the whole. And I think that um, women bring that to, to the space and can ver very much advance a certain kind of problem solving for that reason. And would you say that that's the same um, benefits that we could bring? You know, when we talk about, obviously, leadership on a national and global scale um, and, and why it's important that women are stepping out to lead, um, are there other qualities that you see that we, we bring other than that collaborative aptitude? Uh, well, what more do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, I, I'm always curious to know what it, you know, well, the, the why of it is so important. You know, why are we working so hard to encourage women to lead? And mm -hmm. uh, collaboration is certainly at the top of the list. I think there's a lot of wonderful qualities women have that the world needs I today. Uh, yes, well, you know, collaboration maybe is a word, but it has a lot of other things uh, in it. It it it, it implies uh, the capacity to listen. It implies the the ability to to think collectively <laughs> and not simply individually. It has it it implies um, a kind of humility that can be very um, important for, uh, for advancing knowledge. Um, and so, you know, maybe the word itself needs to be unpacked. Mm. Uh, it does seem to me that, you know, what our world needs now um, are more leaders who inspire that kind of collaboration. Because yes. we cannot move forward if we're not actually moving forward collectively yes and, and, and that act, can and be men and women yes and that can be a, a skill both mm -hmm. men and women have yeah mm -hmm. yeah um, I, I often think about I think we're just intuitive and that intuition uh, when you're noticing subtleties around you um, that's what moves you toward being collaborative and bringing you know of course diversity of thought into problem-solving uh, yes, but again, once again, men can have a very good instincts <laughs> as well. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I don't don't want to sort of draw the binary too too uh, severely. Yes. But at the same time, I I do think that uh, you know recognizing that there are there are there are more than there's more than one way. To get to the solution of a problem. That's right. I mean that kind of notion of an of an open space for thought, where where you actually leave the space open, <laughs> and and maybe uh, recognize that uh, some voice may not be heard yet, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that voice might be critical to the solution that you're that is eluding you. That I think is going to be very important. Yes. Um, for the future and. And um, and you know I I really I really love working in in an environment uh, with many women leaders for that reason because I often I do often find that that kind of listening and that kind of openness uh, prevails. Mm -hmm. 
Connecticut College, you may not know, was in fact a woman's college when it opened. Yes, I did 100, know that. Hundred years ago, and uh, and I do think that there still is an ethos of that kind of openness that defines the campus culture, and it makes it an extraordinary place to learn. Yeah. Um, tell me, you know, talking about universities and the experience, the college experience today, it's it can be uh, it can be quite difficult. For or both the student and, and the parents that are trying to save and put their kids through through college. I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on whether um, we were going to be moving to more online learning and, and less of the campus situation uh, simply because of the cost and, and rise of tuition. Well, um, there people are always looking for a magic bullet uh, to solve the problem of uh, of um, you know the rising cost of education and online education is uh can be a very effective modality uh what is interesting about it though is that if it's done well if it's done well it is actually not so cost effective (laughs) it's actually difficult to to achieve the kind of all-encompassing integrative learning that I'm talking about in an environment where you're not, in fact, interacting closely uh, in a residential environment. So I do think that we're going to continue to have these kinds of institutions because they, first of all, are uh, a reflection of the uniqueness of American higher education, um, but also because they do produce something that is really quite special and important in developing um, the sensibilities of of our uh, of our future leaders, so uh, I think that you're going to start to find more and more hybrid models and experiments that are done, um, and and institutions that that maybe offer more online than face to face, and institutions that offer more face to face than online, and these are the kinds of choices that people will have to make. Mm. But um, it's important also to know what the residential education offers because there's so much learning that goes on in 24 hours. <laughs> and, um, and it's not all about a transaction over a course. It is really about kind of the, the social uh, dimension, uh, the social uh, development of young people into adults. And we can't actually, um, you know, take that, we have to take that very seriously. Yes. It, it gets back to that collaboration we were talking about. If mm-hmm. you're if you're alone on your computer and, you know, studying facts and figures, then that's what you're lacking. Um, well, I do think that, you know, that people become um, connected to each other through um, a certain, the best online environments do create um, social communities. But um, then there's something else, again, that happens when you um, are together, uh, learning with others. Right. And also, the kind of encouragement that can happen. I was thinking about this as I was getting ready to talk with you. You know, um, you know the, the greatest thing in the world is to realize that you have something unique to contribute. Mm-hmm. And... This is what great teachers help you realize about yourself. You know, it's, it's, I think one of the great privileges of pursuing a career in education uh, is that you get to do that for a living. You get to help students realize their potential and see something in themselves that may, they may not have seen. And, and, you know, that you can never take away, and that really is the core of the mission. Yes. Yes, I love that. I think th- that's absolutely right, and it's it's really uh, the ultimate um, for all human beings to discover what that what that original um, offering is uh, and why they're here. And, and everyone is always searching for meaning. Do you, I think sometimes it's critical to ask the right questions when you're trying to help someone, especially young people, figure out what that is. Are there, are there questions that you use or ask when you're um, speaking with someone and trying to, you know, inspire them and help them take that next well, right I've, step? 
I think you um, just you just caught the kernel of it because what I was telling you about the new design of connections, our our new curriculum, at the core of it is actually getting students to ask themselves the question of what really matters. And it's really important because in a kind of consumerist uh, society uh, where education becomes a kind of consumer commodity, it's very important for students to take a moment and reflect on what really matters to them. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, if you take the time, you build that into the educational project. Mm-hmm. It's not so much uh, what uh, it's not so much that you are checking off the boxes of what others expect of you, but you begin to see how you are pursuing things that have the deep significance for you. And the most important thing is that question that you may you may actually uh, try to identify at the beginning of your journey in your sophomore year is going to evolve <laughs> over time and that's actually how you see your own learning and development evolve you mm. see it for yourself yes and that's a very powerful thing very yes. powerful thing and and one of the you know a wonderful question that 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 I learned from doing this show is is to ask what brings you joy and it's mm-hmm. right. So, so what are yeah. you doing when you're feeling the most joyful? And that sometimes can be a really wonderful question to help you find. Uh, you know, the, the sometimes it feels heavy and pressure to say to young people, find your passion. Often they don't know yes, what that exactly. is. Right? Exactly. It's yes. Like, oh, we say that you're you're exactly right. And the thing is, you don't necessarily know right away. But you don't. Maybe that's a that's a call. To start to pay attention. That's it's right. It's a call to start to pay attention to the things that that give you that little feeling inside. Mm-hmm. You know, the the call to pay attention to the work that you are doing without anyone forcing you to do it. You yes. know, yeah. I, I actually went to a wonderful set of senior thesis presentations from the history department at the end of last year. There were just extraordinary students who, to me, they seemed like graduate students in history who were presenting their their honors thesis work. And one young woman who's now actually pursuing her PhD in, in history at Harvard talked about her project and she began with a, with a uh, slide that I, I want to have a copy of this slide so that I can show it to people. She said, well, here, here I started with this question, and it actually developed into 11 different questions, you know, over time. <laughs> but this is what I thought my question was, and then it became this question, and then it became this question, and she had 11 questions on her first slide, and the last one was very, very sophisticated. Uh, but I love the fact that she demonstrated that mm-hmm. as a journey right? That this was something that had moved her. And as she learned more, it became a deeper and deeper exploration. Mm, yeah, I love that too. You know, it's interesting, Catherine, you you and I have a, a shared interest in, in people and you, you know, you started a mm-hmm. podcast of your own um, at the university. <laughs> Tell me about that. And what, you know, where did your interest in, in people come from? My interest in people, I told you, I was the middle child of a big family. Oh, are they? So. <laughs> a <laughs> mediator and a boss. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, if you talk about things that uh, bring you joy, uh, you know, being, being with smart people, passionate people, talented people, people who are trying to make something more uh, and, and to give something to the world, people who want to make a difference that is uh, something that makes me enormously happy <laughs> mm, I know that it is it's wonderful and and gosh mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a place to learn so mm-hmm. you know yes, the, absolutely yeah the, the the privilege of being uh, in education as a field is that you you get to be a learner for your whole life that's right Tell me, here's a question I ask every guest because I think it's important in, you know, I always say we live in a we live in a scary world. And when I say that, I really mean that we have um, access to the goings-on 
of what's happening every day, all day long around the globe. And that can sometimes be a burden. So tell me in those moments of, you know, anxiety um, for you, how do you manage those moments of fear and or anxiety? What do you remind yourself of? Hmm. That's a great question. I'm not sure exactly how to answer it because I don't think there's a single formula. Uh, I think it's, uh, it is important, though, to remember, um, may- maybe it's all the more important in times uh, when you can't quite make sense of what's going on, uh, to realize that you, to go back to original principles, to go back to a place where you real- <laughs> realize that there is something more that you've always wanted to do you know i'm going to tell you a story and it's about music again okay and it, it, it was connecticut college uh is celebrating 100 years of of performances uh you know our first professional performance series mm-hmm. started in 1917 so just a couple of years after the college opened and so this fall we're celebrating this centennial and the opening the opening uh uh act was uh young orchestra called a far cry and they're out of the boston area a great uh, group for you to think about in terms of leadership okay <laughs> because they are a conductorless orchestra and, and uh, they play everything uh together but without a conductor right okay. uh, so that you 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 develop a way to lead um by consensus, mm. by working together. Interesting. And, yeah. um, and, and the effect is really quite uh, riveting. It sounds different when you make music in that way. Mm-hmm. But the, one of the women uh, violinists stood up before and said, you know, sometimes at moments like these, these times that we're living in, I wonder to myself, why are we doing this? Why are we bothering to make music? There are so many more important things in the world. Mm. And she said, as we began to prepare this program for this concert, we came together, and I was struck by the importance of coming together to make something beautiful for the world. And, and then that was the frame in which that concert began, and I felt like everyone was blessed for a moment, mm. right? being able to enter into something mm-hmm. that, that, was, that was very, very meaningful, not just for the players, but for all of us. And I think it's because they went back to a deeper principle, which is why are we doing what we're doing in the first place? And I think that's what you must do in moments like this. You must think about those deeper things that motivate you. What is your question? This is what we're asking our students. And I think this is the thing we have to ask ourselves for our whole lives. Mm. Yeah, that's, you know, music especially is is something that takes us out of our own mind and to a place, um, you know, of, of depending on what type of music you're listening to. But, you know, music is very important to me. And, and you know, when I'm listening and then I stop listening and I'm back to, you know, the, the day-to-day I realized that I was, it, it's like a vacation, you know, it takes you away from the things that uh, sometimes can give us that angst and, and anxiety. And Well, it has the power to suspend time for there a you, moment yeah, and, there, it's, and, give, and give you back yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, Catherine, listen, we're, we're at the end of the show, and it was a wonderful conversation. And um, I, I'd love to just let you leave our listeners with one last bit of advice as, as the president of a, of a college, particularly for young women who listen, um, that uh, just basic leadership advice from you. I would say the best thing to do is not to doubt yourself and to listen to the people who love you. Because if you listen with all your heart, you'll find your way. Yep, that's right. The answers are there, right? That's that's uh-huh. where the answers are. It's wonderful. Thank you, Catherine. I, I appreciate you your too. time. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Have a great week. 
Thank you so much. And that's Bye-bye. it, everyone, uh, for another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Have a wonderful week yourselves. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite.